Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and it is a different world around here. We finally got some rain, and of course, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> Went from bone dry, dead spots into my yard, to having to empty water out of my pool because it was overflowing. Uh, got soaked in the process because I wasn't prepared and didn't have it hooked up right, and the pump came shooting water out at me, so that was fun. But, hey, we've at least got some water. It was long needed because food plots, crop fields, everything, every plant piece of plant life is, is really struggling. This past few week, uh, week and a half, I was seeing a lot of stress in corn and soybeans in my daily travels. You know, we're starting to see drought stress symptoms on corn, which I've never seen it in May. You know, corn plants that are 8 inches tall and they're shriveled up and look like pineapples. It's crazy. I don't think it made major damage as far as yield. I mean, yield's not going to be determined in corn and soybeans uh, for a couple weeks yet. Uh, we're, we're approaching when the, the first determination of yield is going to be met. But, uh, yeah, I, I think there's still good potential out there for a lot of my growers and, and the, the people I work with. The problem is now that we got rain, things are going to happen really, really fast. So to give you an idea of what's been happening, so – we go through corn soybeans, right? We, we do our first pass of herbicides. We clean the field up. We'll do a burn down application with a pre-emerge herbicide. So uh, we'll do that kind of a two for one deal and plant. And then we try to time the second herbicide application that it's, uh, it's going to happen at a, a specific growth stage. Weeds are, you know, two to four inches tall. You know, we make that application, clean the weeds up, the crop canopies over, soil isn't exposed anymore. So between the herbicide use and then just natural plants shading out and over competing weeds, we have clean fields. And when we have these dry, dry conditions, a lot of the herbicides that we use don't work the way they're designed to work. Most of the herbicides, uh, you know, pre-emerge herbicides, they need a little bit of rain to incorporate them and activate them in the soil. Or, uh, you know, even your, your Roundups, your 2,4-Ds, those are herbicides that are systemic. So they move through the plant. Well, if we don't have water and, and active water in the soil moving through the plant, the plant's going through drought stress symptoms where it's shriveling up and conserving as much moisture as possible. It's not moving water. It's not moving nutrients through the plant, so the herbicides don't work as well. So all that to say, it's been pretty just stagnant as far as field work. <clears throat> we haven't been spraying uh, you know, planting is pretty much wrapped up, so we haven't been planting and we haven't been fertilizing. So we've just been sitting here watching the crop sit and not move for a number of weeks. Now that we got rain, what's going to happen is this crop is going to take off exponentially. It's got a lot of catching up to do. It's going to bolt out of the ground. 
and then it's going to mean all of the field work that we have to do prior to crop camping over is going to have to get done in a short amount of time. So I'm anticipating sprayers to be rolling like crazy to be able to get all the acres covered and cleaned up before canopy. We also have fertilizing to do on corn. We'll usually split apply nitrogen to the crop. You know, we have a lot of sources of nitrogen. You know, I, I, it's part of my job. I'll calculate what has gone on the field, kind of understanding the, the type of the soil, the contribution from cover crops, how much animal manure and how to calculate that. You use conditions, you know, uh, previous legume crop. We, we come up with all this to come up with uh, rates of uh, additional nitrogen that are going to be, you know, advantageous for a grower it's going to be profitable to to put on and we usually like to do that when corn is about uh, v5 which is basically knee high is a great time because corn takes up a lot of nitrogen at that moment in time so you know at the same time when corn is you know eight inches tall up to knee high at the same time we're trying to clean fields up we also got to be going across the field to put fertilizer on in a lot of these cases so it's just making a lot of work in a short amount of time it's going to be uh pure utter chaos for a lot of my growers it'll be pure utter chaos for me making sure i'm on top and ahead of things uh making sure we're we're going in the right chronological order based on weed pressures and yield potential and things like that so a lot of running around that's what june always is but hard to believe we are halfway through june um gosh it's so scary i mean it is like all i've been doing lately is work house projects family repeat and I'm loving it. I mean, it's fun seeing the projects come through, and I love watching my boys grow and do fun stuff with them. I'm hoping this Sunday on Father's Day, take him, uh, take my three-year-old fishing. I think that's going to be something really fun to do. But I'm starting to get really, really anxious. Um, th- I, I want to have cameras out. I want to have this done. I want to work on this. And I truly, looking in the future, have no idea when I'm going to get anything done. Like, I, I truly am in a position right now where I think I'm going to get my tail handed to me this fall just from lack of preparation. And I don't know, I've, I've never been in a situation where I had to do a lot of work in a short amount of time or, or basically do it as the season goes on, basically scout and hunt my way through. Um, this is going to be an interesting year. I, I don't know what to expect, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, embracing, embracing it for what it is. And uh, I had another interesting thing. I, I Distant family to me, uh, who I haven't seen in years, we recently uh, reconnected with this winter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those connections on my mom's side and, you know, this uh, her, her cousin, cousin's son has a, has a young daughter who I got to meet and uh, she's interested in archery. She does archery in the classroom. And out of nowhere, she reached out to me a few weeks later. She says, um, Mitch, I would really like to go hunting, um, but I don't know where to go. And neither does my dad because he's not a hunter. Do you know any places to go or could you take me? So, like, that's a whole new thing that just got thrown into my my world. And, you know, me being me, I like to encourage people to hunt, take new people hunting. So I'm already thinking, okay, well, how am I going to swing this one or, or work this into the, the equation? So... Just, uh, just interesting, fun stuff happening. But I said it before, man, I've been seeing a lot of good deer in my travels and work. A lot of really nice buck. And it's getting me fired up. 
but uh, with with antlers growing, there's there's also another animal that's growing antlers, and it's growing a lot more rapidly. And that's kind of the center and focus of today's show. This week we have Brian Hale back from Elk County Outfitters on the show. Now, if you would have listened to the episode that we did with Brian last year, you could probably pick up that Brian and the team at ECO are extremely hardworking, extremely dedicated, and just love the elk hunt, want to do the best job they can, but they're genuinely interested in the elk. They're interested in the 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 science, the 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 you know, all the biology and the hard work that goes into the, the decision making process and then having people come and experiencing something that, you know, they they live with. And <clears throat> we we kind of recap the 2022-2023 elk hunting season at ECO. They had some great hunts, some great bulls. They actually brought down a state record, which he talks about a little bit. But then we transition into kind of some updates that are happening within the state. Now, keep in mind, Brian is he's a heck of a nice guy, heck of a knowledgeable guy. And, you know, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. He knows his stuff. But, um, you know, he, he's not the biologist. He's interpreting everything that he's done with his own research and his communication with state officials and stuff. Um, and, and he's uh, so, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to put him on the spot as, you know, he's he's telling us as, as the biologist something. He's just, uh, uh, he's the messenger in, in this stuff that's happening and update. And you can do all the research yourself because, you know, I had to do my own research and, and, and check in on everything we were talking about. And, you know, he, he's got his facts straight. He's a knowledgeable guy. He's, um, you know, he's just with it with everything comes to elk. And he kind of shares with us, uh, what he's learned about the thing, you know, some of the science that they're doing right now and, and the research calf mortality was a big one and how that calf mortality study now is different than it was years ago and how that data is now used to influence the number of tag allocations. Really interesting stuff. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about how the application window and deadlines have been moved up. You know, it used to be in August when the drawing would happen. Now it's July 29th. And we also had the opportunity, residents, non-residents, to start putting your points in back in February this year. So a lot of changes there. We, we go into a little bit more detail with that. We talk a little bit more about the application process zones. And then we just talk elk hunting and hunting stuff in general all centered around, uh, you know, Pennsylvania elk, an incredible, incredible opportunity. Um, guys, if you haven't been putting in for the drawing for that, you're missing out. Um, you know, I've, I started putting in a number of years ago, wish I would have put in before that for whatever reason I didn't. So I'm slowly accruing and I hope that one day I'm able to be lucky enough and, and draw a tag and have the opportunity to hunt elk in Pennsylvania. And I hope that I'm able to do it, um, you know, with, with Brian and ECO because, you know, I've, I've been able to connect with him uh, with with our show and I've really enjoyed talking with him on and off the air and it'd be an experience I, I would like to to continue so I hope that's an option but you know this will get you guys fired up but you know if you if you haven't drawn or, or applied for the tag this might be just enough fuel in your fire to make you want to do it so without further ado let's get to this episode right before we do we're going to leave our our shout out to the people who make this happen and that be our show sponsors and guys radix hunting 
if you guys are looking for trail cameras, if you are looking to expand your trail camera arsenal, update trail cameras, switch cameras out, whatever it may be, check them out. The traditional Gen 600s, top of the line image quality, and their M-Core cell cams, they are quality cell cameras, great reception, and they are priced very, very competitively. Um, you're you're going to you'll be hard pressed to uh, find something that beats it um, in all of the trail camera world. So check out Radix Hunting and all the other accessories they have to offer. And also want to leave our shout out to Huntworth, guys. If you are looking to, if you want to feel better about what you're wearing, like feel comfortable about what you're wearing and not break the bank, check out Huntworth because I was truly blown away utilizing their clothing this spring. I felt comfortable, I was warm, I was dry, but you know, when, when the, the seasons changed in Spring Gobbler, I, I kept cool, I was able to, to move comfortably, and the pattern, I love, love that disruption pattern, that digital camo. Uh, I'm really excited to use it this fall. But you could get a couple different sets of clothing from light, mid-weight to heavyweight. But it, it's very versatile for the, the, the climate that we have and the hunting situations that we have. Um, you know, I think what I'll be able to use from Spring Gobbler is going to transition for most of archer season. And that would be the Elkins pattern but uh, or, or, or setup. But there's a lot of other options out there. Guys, check Huntworth out. Quality clothing. Keep you warm, keep you quiet, uh, keep you comfortable. And without further ado, let's get to this episode. Welcoming back to the show, uh, repeat offender here, Brian Hale from Elk County Outfitters. Elk, Elk County, not Elk Country, right? I got that right. Correct. Yep, Elk County. Lots of folks say Elk Country, but uh, it is Elk County Outfitters. Yep, yep. But, thanks hey, for having me. Yeah, welcome back. I appreciate you having you. Um, have you been? Oh, good, good. Um, kind of like uh, what about everybody else is into right now? It's just awfully dry here in pretty much all Pennsylvania. Um, oddly dry for this time of year, but you know we're we're moving along. Bulls are bulls are starting to show a little bit of length. Uh, there's they're still hard to tell exactly what you're looking at as far as velvet wise. I'm, I'm referring to. Right. Um, they're still kind of globby and and bumpy, you know, with points starting up on the tops and everything. But, uh, in another, another month, usually around 4th of July is when I kind of get serious about scouting velvet. Um, just by then they still have plenty of time to grow by 4th of July, but usually they're framed out pretty good by then. And you have a pretty good idea, um, what you're looking at overall. And plus some of the bulls that are more recognizable by at that point, um, you know, from year to year with certain antler characteristics. So, um, we're just, hoping for some rain i mean uh, we, we generally don't deal with drought conditions here um in relation to antler growth like a lot of western states do but i don't know if i wouldn't be awfully surprised if there's a little bit of a, a step back this year um in antler production just because of the dryness and the quality of the grass and the forage and stuff on the landscape right now when you know when the animals need it right um you know 
for, for antler growth. So we'll see. And t- time will tell. Um, this is definitely a little bit of an oddball anomaly for us. Yeah. Um, well, you know, speaking of the, the dry weather and the vegetation stuff. So, you know, if I think about it from the agronomy side of things, you know, this spring into summer, we've had, again, abnormally dry conditions and whenever we have that typically i see lower yields for a lot of the guys as far as hay production like my first cutting hay production uh was you know almost half for some of my growers as far as the total amount now the quality's there but i have to think you know you know perennial grasses and forbs and stuff like that that elk and deer are going to feed on the quality's going to probably be there but i'm just curious and i don't have the knowledge to know like is the volume there to supply what they need given you know assuming the quality quality stays relative you know print you know native foragers are going to be a lot hardier than a planted uh non-native grass species or something like that that's going to be but i would still have to think that the uh even those deep root systems on a native plant there's they've got to be struggling because we're just running out of moisture in those lower the, the lower portion of the soil Definitely, definitely. And I, I think so. So up here around our area, um, I, there are a couple, um, I'll use the term farmers pretty loosely. I mean, they have some hay fields and they have some beef cows and they kind of loosely play around with farming. And they just started laying hay down in a couple spots. And boy, it just looks so thin and wispy and doesn't seem like there's volume there. Um, and it's funny, you know, you look at a hay field. And you don't think a hay field can experience crop damage, you know, as opposed to like looking at a cornfield or a soybean field. And you can obviously see when the deer and the bear or the yelp get into those. I mean, there's you can tell and see the damage. But I know a couple of those guys, they really him and haul and harp on on the the essential grazing damage that elk do just on their hay fields. They said you probably you wouldn't really think that they could hit grass like that and do that much of a damage, but um, they definitely do. And then that, you know, the grazing um, stress combined with the dry weather, the lack of, you know, the lack of uh, uh, um, water stress, it, it'll be interesting to see what what hay looks like next year. You know, if, if we come through again with another dry spring, um, it'll be interesting to see what, what a two-year you know, two year, um, event would be like, but oh, hopefully, probably. hopefully it's not, yeah, hopefully it's not bad. Hopefully it's nothing that the, you know, trip the triggers on the farmers and they, they decide to, do, you know, take some drastic steps. Um, sometimes that does happen, but, um, yeah, you know, I, they're within their legal right at that point to, to do that as long as they follow the steps that are in place. But, um, right. just, yeah, just, it looked like it. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just from that that dry weather statement, I've had more anxious farmers calling me this year just because we came off of a dry year. And uh, you were talking about hay production. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the the droughts last summer, you know, a lot of guys took their first cutting of hay off, and then it just got beaten down with a lack of rain, no sun, or uh, high sun, high heat. And yep. uh, really thin yep. stands out. So now we're going into two years of this, and it's gonna it's kind of going in the same thing after first cutting. It could really drastically change that from a farmer's perspective. But absolutely, I yep. would think it's got to take its toll on the. And I wouldn't yep. have even thought about it from a crop damage perspective with elk. But I mean, absolutely. I mean, you think about a whitetail's got to take in. Uh, I forget what the percentage of body weight is, but I think they average what five to six pounds of woody browse a day for an adult mm-hmm. deer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's tenfold for an elk. Yep. As far as grazing. Well, I mean, yeah, so just think of just imagine trying to cut hay out of a cow pasture. You know, I mean if you have if you have a resident group of elk that frequent hay fields, I mean they're they're grazing just like 
beef cattle would or or milk cattle you know any of the dairy cattle would um and they can definitely keep stuff you know subdued they can keep uh, growth subdued and keep it down um but luckily there's a lot of other stuff this time of year um you know that can draw their attention that that they don't focus totally on that grass but um it, it definitely is an issue and it's something that some of the farmers kind of do pay attention to and you know it's kind of just uh another thing that they have to overcome you know in their in their effort to survive or at least um, be productive as, you know as as farmers in the elk range um, let let alone when they actually try to plant some kind of an actual grain crop or anything like that right uh, or corn or anything you know from um, the from the dry side of things thinking deer hunting you know last year uh, a lot of my big woods northern Pennsylvania hunting for whitetails, I I noticed that because of the drought, where did we have the most browse and the most forage? It was down low in creek bottoms and stuff. So I'm already yep. thinking that I'm already thinking ahead for this year. Like we're, we're we're set up for that exact same thing. I wonder if I'll yep. see similar trends in some of the whitetail hunting. But you know, speaking on that trend of of last season, Sam, how was last season for uh, for elk for you guys? Oh man, it it was good. I mean, it it was another good year. Um, you know, we, you always, uh, we, we hit a lot of our goals, a lot of our milestones. Um, a uh, couple big bulls got away from us, you know, that we know made it through all three of the seasons. Um, we got a couple really big bulls. Um, actually last year we, we ended up, uh, harvesting the new state record, typical, um, wow. firearm bull. Um, it was a, a giant, giant six by six. It, it's a unicorn bull anywhere that elk live, but especially in Pennsylvania, just because for the fact of it being a typical bull. I mean, when our bulls get up seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, you know, in that prime window, we generally deal with non-typical antler configurations. You know, there's there's splits on splits, and there's drop tines, and there's webbing, and there's extras here and there, and stickers. This bull was about the cleanest six by six I had ever seen anywhere, let alone Pennsylvania. Uh, he had two little kickers, one off of his left side fourth and his fifth, um, that are, that we lost a couple inches on, on our, on our net, um, uh, our net typical score, but, but just, just a monster six by six. He, he nets four Oh seven and four eights, um, which, which just crushes the previous record. Uh, for Pennsylvania, anyways, the previous Pennsylvania state record was 388 and one eighth, and that was that was taken by another uh, ECO hunter uh, back in 2018, and that bull was actually a seven by seven, a typical seven by seven. So, so we crushed that by nearly 30 points, 30 inches, and we essentially had two less points on each side, you know, one less point on each side. So, did he was so, he just the whole package, mass, length, everything? Oh my lord! Yeah, he had great beams. He had over 50 inch beams, which which is huge for us. He had the mass. All of his tines were long. Um, just just a great bull, and it was a bull we had a lot of history with. I mean, we had been we had known of this bull for multiple years. We had hunted him multiple seasons with multiple clients. Um, he just he he just always seemed to know when to disappear or when to get to the right to the right side for him the wrong side for us of the posters you know on private property um he just uh, we had a lot of history with him over the years we we so he was actually taken by um this past season's uh, auction tag holder or a lot of people call it the governor tag holder um 
But prior prior to us harvesting him uh, with the governor tag hunter, we actually hunted that bull with a general season archery hunter that we had in camp. He had a tag for that zone, and we knew the bull was there. Um, uh, and we saw the bull a couple times. Unfortunately, the hunter had some range limitations and had some mobility issues. And when we needed to zig, he couldn't quite zag with us. And when the bull was just just out of his range you know he just we weren't comfortable you know sending one um so we 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 held off a couple times and um as it ended up uh the bull the bull made it through uh the general archery season and then we were able to get on him uh a week or so later with the um with the auction tag hunter um we 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 actually hunted the him with the bow the auction tag hunter actually hunted with a bow for the majority of his hunt that year or i'm sorry last season um just as it ended up when we finally kind of tightened the noose and was figuring out and narrowing down this bull, we, we knew the area where he was at. We, we might not get a chance to get it within bow range of him. Um, just, he was kind of working on post rut. He was kind of winding down. He had left all the cows. He was, he was, um, he had moved off of where he was with his cows and where he had rutted about, mile or two up on the side of a mountain on a piece of private property um that we had permission on and as it ended up being the the, the hunter did use a rifle um but he he would have he would have been an archery state record also if we would have been able to get him um w- with the bow but ju- just an incredible animal again um you know a 400 inch net typical six by six is just gigantic anywhere i mean it's uh it's just an incredible bull um, uh, and then we had, we had another archery hunter, another archery bull hunter in camp under a different zone. Um, fella passed up 18 bulls. Wow. And now, now 18 bulls, everything from spikes to, to some shooter bulls, um, out of those 18, I would say 10 of those, uh, from what the guys were telling me in the videos and everything they were showing me. 10 of those 18 were definitely shooters. So, so those other ones, you know, were smaller bulls, rags, but bulls that just come crashing into calling. I mean, some, you hit them just right, just like with turkeys, you know, sometimes you hit it just right. You don't have to make very many calls and then the gobblers just come running or the bulls just come charging. Um, so the, the issue, what, what ended up happening was they were hunting in an area that was just total chaos for about a week and a half with rut activity. Um, no joke when I tell you they were hearing anywhere from a dozen to 20 bulls, different bulls mm. bugling every day. And a lot of times they'd get in that scenario where, oh my God, I, where do you go? You know, there's one bugling here. Well, there's one bugling right there. Well, there was one bugling right behind us. What do you do? Where do you go? You know, so they, they spent a lot of time chasing bugles, um, calling in bulls, um, on multiple occasions, they saw three different 400 plus bulls. Now they couldn't get shots at them, but they, they would see them, you know, crossing a power line or a gas line ahead of them, or they'd catch glimpses of them in the timber in the woods or something. And that really lit the fire of the hunter and the guides that were with them. And they, they kept wanting to hold out. They kept wanting to hold out. You know, the big guys are right here. Tomorrow's going to be the day. Tomorrow's going to be the day. Meanwhile, they're passing 340, 50, 360 bulls almost daily, if not every other day. Um, and, and, you know, at, at, as the old saying goes, don't ever pass up on the first day what you would gladly shoot on the last day. Well, 
it got to be the last day. And unfortunately that was the quietest day of the two week hunt. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, although the tag went unfilled, um, the, the, the hunter was just more than ecstatic and happy with everything. He, he was totally fine and understanding. He knew there was lots of opportunities. Um, but it was just, it, you know, a lot of times people scratch their heads and wonder how in the world do you not fill a Pennsylvania elk tag? You know, I mean, historically, the, um, historically the success rates are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, bulls are, are, are nearly a hundred percent. Cows are usually in that upper 60, 70%, you know, um, success rate. So whenever anybody hears, well, there's empty elk tags, of course, it's like, well, what in the world were these guys even trying, you know? Well, there's, there's a lot of factors that can go into that. I mean, there's like that scenario I just mentioned there where they kept holding out and holding out and holding out. And in the end, it ended up, it ended up costing them the tag. Um, some guys there's mobility issues. There really is. Um, right. And then sometimes you also have, uh, availability issues. Hunters can only hunt so much time. Sometimes they just work schedules don't allow, um, family, you know, family stuff. Uh, there's, there, there's a lot of different factors that can go into an unfilled tag. It's just not always as easy as everybody likes to think it is. But, um, I want to, I want to circle back to something, Brian. So you were talking about the, the big 400 inch bull that was killed this year, Mm -hmm. the rifle. And you were talking about the history that you guys had with that bull. And I, I remember talking with you last year when we spoke that, you know, you, you guys do a lot of scouting periodically, you you follow bulls, you know, follow their unique characteristics. So, you know, I've learned with whitetails that if I get history with a specific buck, um, I see trends throughout certain times of the fall where he might do something similar in a, in, the, in a certain area at a certain time of year. You know, to give you an example, my, uh, the big buck I killed in 2020, um, he, he, I killed him within uh, three days of when I had pictures of him the year before. And he was doing the okay. same trend in 2020, and I was just so happened to capitalize on it. So I'm, I'm curious, like, when you have history with a bull like that, do you find similar instances with elk? Do you find that they do similar things in similar areas at certain times of the year, or is that uh, nope. not necessarily the case? Is it more food pressure related? Nope, most definitely 100%. Like you just said, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, they're, they're, the elk are predictable at certain times of the year. So, like, this particular bull, we have over the years, 90% of our encounters and knowledge of him was during the rut. Um, he was kind of a ghost in velvet. We kind of knew the general area and a couple of times, some of the guys had gotten velvet pictures of him, but it was once or twice a year. That would be it. And it was, it was big woods area where he would summer. Um, there was pipelines and gas lines and power lines, but no food plots. Um, so it was hard. It was hard to try to, I mean, we would, we, we could point on a map and say he's somewhere here, you know, in this area, but it was just vast woods. Um, but then, like I said, during the rut, he would always become highly visible. He would come down. That's where the cows were. Um, and then post rut, we would know we would always be able to track him a little bit backwards, like as he was going back towards that summer area where he, then he would go to winter. And then that's what ended up last year. We learned quite a bit about him. Um, we thought we were going to get him. We thought we were going to take him last year with a late se- I'm sorry, with a general season um, rifle hunter last year. And it ended up being the hunter shot a different big bull earlier, just before, um, before we got to that, before we were able to find him. Um, so, you know, all that knowledge from last year and the previous years, that all just compounds. 
and um, just another piece of the puzzle. And eventually, you finally find that last piece, and it all clicks together, you know. And you're a- and you're able to uh, to get a shot opportunity at one of them. Um, it's it, it's 100 uh, percent. A lot of the success on the really really big bulls are that's due to history. No, knowing knowing bulls, um, having pictures and video and sightings from our guys, from our friends, from our other folks out and about. Um, it, it definitely, definitely having a network of people and having a history and knowing where how animals tend to move at different times of the year plays plays into into our benefit a hundred percent. There's no doubt. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizeseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Right, and I'm assuming that do, do food sources that you see elk targeting throughout the year, do they stay fairly consistent? I mean, I would assume, you know, I, I think about big woods whitetails and there's a lot of fluctuation between hard mass crops and how they might utilize an area but is it is it a little bit more consistent from an elk perspective because they're grazers and they're looking for open grassland food plot type type uh growth well yeah yeah yes it definitely can i mean um elk will definitely eat acorns i mean they can definitely switch to when the acorns are hot and heavy and falling um, you know, usually they're around mid and late September all the way through into October and even the beginning of November sometimes. They they can definitely switch to almost, it seems like at least I'm, I'm not bi- not biological, uh, biologically speaking here, but it, anecdotally, anecdotically, it definitely seems like they'll just go straight to uh, um, uh, eating acorns. Yeah. They're, they're, that's a. I mean, I think they, I think biologically and internally, they still have to eat grass. They still have to have something in there, but um, I think they focus mainly and more uh, when the acorns are hot and heavy like that, um, and and that pulls them out of those open areas, the grass areas, the food plots, the power lines, the right of ways that are maintained, and of course it makes things a little more difficult. They're they're not as easy to see in the woods when they're out in the open, you know, um, so. So we actually, so we just came off of last year, a horrible, horrible gypsy moth um, uh, infestation up here, most of the elk range. And the year before that, we had pretty significant, but not as bad as this year. Now, this spring, the PGC and the DCNR had done, has done significant spraying mm-hmm. um, up here. And we don't seem, I, I don't see near the, uh, I don't see near the defoliation right now as we did the last couple of years this time of year, but I have noticed, and there's 100% plain as day. It's easy to see there's mortality out there. There's trees that took those two years of defoliation and they died. Yeah. And well, you now, coupled it with the drought stress and, and then we well, also yeah, had that correct. late frost. Yes. Yes. Yep. I mean, right now there's a, there's certain areas that you couldn't, I don't think you could find a gypsy mouth on them right now, but there's dead Oak trees that are, that were alive, 
barely alive last year, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there's now they're now now they're dead. They they succumbed, you know, too much uh, too much stress from the defoliation, stress from the the dry times and the drought. Um, so so they so the acorn thing fluctuates. I mean, they're going to go where there's acorns. And I'll tell you what, this this over this winter and even into the early earliest of spring here for shed season, I know elk definitely seem to be, and I use like air quotes here, different. They, they didn't, they the elk weren't in like what I would say would be their normal winter haunts um, out in some of the big woods, public ground out in Quihanna um, and over in a bunch of other places for whatever reason, I think it was lack of acorns. There, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, uh, whatever acorns actually did get produced they were already cleaned up and gone mm. long before there was snow, you know? Um, so the elk, the, the elk seem to be roaming a lot more. Whereas in the past you could find, if you would find like acorn pockets on benches or ridges or something, you could, you could realistically find multiple bulls there that would be hanging in there. And just as an example around shed season, and you oftentimes could find sheds this year, it seemed like, you could see a, a group of elk just catch them somewhere one morning and then next morning or two mornings later, they're four or five miles away in another spot. Just And they're just like kind of on the move. They're walking and nipping and, and eating and digging and walking and nipping and digging and eating, you know. Um, there there was a lot of scattered um, – well, I shouldn't even say scattered. There really wasn't much for hard mast. Um, which, which they, they definitely try to, you know, they definitely eat in the, uh, over the winter time. Um, so, so shed season was interesting. I, I know a lot of the, a couple of the guys came on strong late. They must've figured something out, but a couple of my buddies that are big time elk shed, shed hunters in general, but elk shed hunters, especially they struggled. Um, a couple of the guys did find, uh, did do good here. Kind of the latter end of what I would say would be the elk shed season. Um, but in general, yeah, a lot of folks, a lot of the guys that hunt hard and hunt a lot and hunt often, um, they said they, they were having trouble. They were struggling finding elk. And then when they did find them, they'd be gone the next day or within a day or so. Um, Probably a lot of and, that attributed to the mild winter. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there was that. We did have, in general, a mild winter. So um, they, they weren't confined by any real weather, um, but there wasn't a lot of food on the landscape out there as far as, uh, you know, hard leftover hard mass or anything like that. So they had to wander and uh, wander around a lot. And of course, you know, I say this all the time. I mean, just people, I mean, my Lord, there's shed season, any weekend in March, especially mid and late March, you take a ride out through a lot of the public ground up here in the elk range. And my Lord, you would think it might be the first day of bear season or buck season. There's just vehicles at every gate. There's people everywhere. Um, and they're just out, you know, they're out looking for sheds. It's, uh, it's a fun pastime. Um, and there's always that, of course, you know, it's always, it's a pretty low percentage to actually find anything. Um, especially when you're kind of just shooting from the hip. Um, but, uh, people are always out there, you know, just trying to take that chance. Like it's, it's good cabin fever buster. Um, kind of the first things in the spring where, where pe- folks get back out, um, you know, out in the woods after, after being in for most of the winter. So it, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a fun activity, but man, it's a lot, there's a lot of people and 
they get scattered around for sure. So talking <laughs> earlier, you were talking about your client and, you know, sometimes dealing with, with when you get a client that gets a tag, you know, we're, you're dealing with work schedules, you're dealing with families, and you might have time restraints as far as when you can hunt. And uh, some of that's probably due to the way, you know, the Pennsylvania – does their 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 tags with the, the allocation i mean you don't find out until you know within a, a few weeks of elk season that you actually drew a tag so you got to make some short-term uh short-term plans uh to make that happen and uh you know this year we you know, the state changed how they do the, the points a little bit and uh, i know you've done a, little, a lot more of that uh not, you have a lot more of that knowledge than i do and i was kind of curious like um how, I know it. I think it started in February that you could apply for a point, right? Yep, yep, yep. And um, so exactly, that's a good segue there for for, uh, from one topic to the next there. So, so pretty much, yeah. So the the application period for Pennsylvania elk always used to be prior to this year. It always used to be when the new licenses would go on sale, which is generally right around mid end of June. At that point, you could apply for your elk points and apply for your elk zones. And then the cutoff or the ending of the application period was the end of July. And then in usually around August 20s, somewhere in there, they would have the elk expo um, where the game commission would have the lottery reveal, where they would announce the winners. Um, So that's a very tight window. So, I mean, you're talking about – and then archery season – would start last year started i believe it was september 10th mm-hmm. so you're talking about finding out that you went you won an elk archery tag just as an example on august 20th last year and the first day to hunt is now september 10th so there's like three week win, barely a three week window there where folks have to make some huge huge concessions and and um ju- juggle a lot of stuff around in their life you know, to take advantage of this tag that they drew. And that that right there was one of the most common complaints, and I, I'll say complaints, um, that that hunters would have was the short time frame from when they're found, they find out that they won the tag until their season actually starts. So um, Jeremy Banfield, the Game Commission elk biologist, um, every single elk hunter at the end of the seasons gets a sur- they will receive a survey from him. Um, you can fill it out in paper and mail it to him, or you can do it electronically online. And multiple things in there. He asks about how your hunt went. Did you hunt private land? Were you turned away from private land? Hunt public land? This and that. Were you uh, DIY or guided? And then there's a comment section just for you know speaking your mind. And he said overwhelmingly, almost everybody um, had issues with the time frame from being awarded the tag to the start of the season. So he he took all that feedback um, back to the commissioners and lobbied to change the drawing date. So he wanted to, and he actually was successful two ways here. So Jeremy got the um, he got the elk drawing moved up, so the elk expo which uh, is in, is held at the Elk Country Visitor Center uh, in Benazette. Um, there was some coordination had to do there because they had to, they had to reschedule their event. So, so the, um, the Elk Expo is pretty much a two-day kind of elk extravaganza, uh, I guess you would call it, up there at the Elk Expo. Saturday's highlight is obviously the Game Commission lottery drawing. 
And then Sunday is the Kika drawing. Um, there's vendors, there's local artists, there's food vendors, there's activities. Um, there's a pre- it's a pretty good event. I mean, I, I encourage anybody that would be interested in it, um, you know, take a ride up, uh, go attend it. it. It does get busy. It's, it's, I, I wouldn't have thought that you could, that that place would be overwhelmed, but with people, but man, there's a lot of people. It, it, it has, it's a big draw. It's a big, gets a big crowd. So I'm divert. I'm uh, digressing there. So the El- the elk lottery drawing has to be held by law on the grounds of the elk country visitor center. It's actually written in the, in title 34, um, um, that the, the reveal or the elk lottery drawing has to be held there on the grounds of the elk visitor center. Gotcha. So when the, when the game commission, when Jeremy wanted to change his drawing date, he wanted to move it up. He wanted to move it to the left in the calendar, um, to allow more, more time for hunters to prep. He then had to coordinate or he had to uh, solicit the elk expo folks to see if they could move their whole event. So they were successful. Um, uh, the elk expo is, uh, July 28th and 29th this year. So it is almost a whole, almost a whole month. It's pretty much three and a half weeks earlier. Um, and then the first day of elk archery season, Jeremy actually moved to the right on the calendar. Um, so the first day of elk archery season this year is September 16th. Gotcha. So, so, so folks are going to find out on July 28th that they drew an elk archery tag. And they now have an added four or five weeks buffer um, built in there to prepare for their hunt. Whether they use that time for scouting or they use that time for soliciting outfitters and guides or, or, or what have you, there's just now there's a little bit of more uh, comfort built in there uh, in, 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 the, uh, in, in the calendar to allow those guys time to prepare. So I know that that's a big win. That's a big win for everybody. I mean, that's a big win for all the successful hunters. I, I, I don't mind it as a, as a, as an outfitter, um, because it gives us more time. I mean, it's, it's just a mad rush when, when you, when you start trying to schedule meetings with guys and meet and greets, and there's only so many weekends in between there. Everybody has regular, you know, uh, 40 hour week jobs. Um, it's hard for folks to get free and get away and come up and do their meet and greets. Right. Um, and just kind of feel stuff out. So it definitely gives the outfitters a little bit of breathing room also where we're, it's still going to be, it's still going to be hectic. There, there's no doubt about that, but, but there, there isn't as much uh, of a sense of urgency, I guess. Um, I, I, I would say, um, well, you know, with this later, with this later, uh, um, later season and earlier drawing. So, so, in turn, when they move the elk expo up and the drawing date up, um, they then in turn also opened up the application period farther. And they, they actually opened it up. I believe it was the first or second week in February. Um, the game commission had a, had a social media. February 1st through July 16th. I have here. Yep. 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 They, uh, they kind of had it on black. We, so, some of us, uh, the outfitters and the guides and kind of folks in the loop, we had heard and knew that it was going to be coming uh, early January, February. Um, but they, uh, the game commission just did kind of a social media blast with it. it. It was on their Facebook and on their Instagram and on their website and stuff. Um, and, uh, of course, right away, folks, there was a million questions. Well, wait a minute. Why is this now? This always used to be like this. This always used to be in June. Um, you know, what's going on? And then 
then it was almost kind of a, a chicken little, the sky is falling. Oh, my God, we're going to have so many more applicants now because we're giving them so much time. I, I don't know if I uh, I don't know if I would um, fall if I would fall into the, that camp or that train of thought. Right. But I, I think there I think there definitely is going to be more folks. Um, but part of it is just from. I, and I, I would just say kind of the natural progression of people learning about Pennsylvania elk. Um, and, and I guess it would pertain, pertain a lot. Of, I think you'll see a lot of that growth in non-resident applications. Um, there's, there's way more folks out there that don't know that Pennsylvania has elk. And then, then somehow they randomly hear about it, see about it through a social media page somewhere or in a magazine somewhere um or on a on the pennsylvania woodsman podcast who knows yeah for sure um, there's been a bunch of podcasts here late, lately yeah. about pa pa yep. hunting yep so um i i think that's where we're gonna see a lot of our additional applications is going to be from non-residents and that makes a lot of people moan and groan a lot of residents moan and groan and i i i'm kind of there a little bit i i foresee depending upon how this year's applications go um, I foresee the game commission instituting a, or I should say instituting a cap. Yeah. Instituting a cap on non-resident tags. So, so currently as it sits right now, there is no limit to the amount of non-residents that can draw a Pennsylvania elk tag. Right. So theoretically all 144 of our elk tags could be drawn by a non-resident, but statistically that, that'll never happen. Um, Last year, I think, was the most elk tags that went to a non-resident that that we had ever seen. And I believe it was, oh boy, I should have had this stat. I know I have it, I have it in a note somewhere. I want to say it was right around 20 or 21 percent between archery general and late, you wow. know, between all three seasons. And prior to that, it had never been over 10 percent. The highest that it ever got was like 9.8% or something. Um, and, and again, I attribute, and, and then last year there was a lot more applications um, also than, than previous years. So I really just attribute that to the natural growth and, and people discovering Pennsylvania elk and being interested in it. And for, and the fact that it's quite frankly, so cheap to apply, it's kind of almost one of those, well, why the hell wouldn't I do this? Right. It only cost me it's 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 peanuts really comparative to well not it really it is it's peanuts comparative to western um states and you know different species applications stuff out there so i think that that the the cheapness of it the, the low cost along with the word finally getting out there more people knowing and learning about it um i think we're going to continue to see our applications rise um and then i do think if we would, if we throw another year with a 15, 20% non-resident allocation, I would look to um, the game commission to actually implement a, you know, a 10% cap. And I would be on board with that. And I would, I would likely jump up and down a little bit and speak my point of mind, my point of view to anybody um, that would have any authority that, that would listen. Well, that you know, I, the I, Western I states are doing it. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing that mm-hmm. happen across uh, across the whole yeah. western part of the country where uh, tag allocations and point creep and stuff like that's happening. And, uh, you know, I'm all, I'm all for opportunity. I love the fact that it's growing because it produces revenue and interest in our state, which is a good positive thing. Uh, you know, a lot of positives happen with elk. You know, I think some of that, you're talking about growth in applications, some of that's growth in knowledge. But correct me if I'm wrong, the, the elk population's growing as well. Well, yes. So that, that, that leads that leads kind of into another thing that I was going to touch on here in a little bit. There actually has been a little bit of a change. So um, the elk biologist has actually pulled back a little bit from his allocation, actually reduced, um, re- reduced allocate, uh, reduced tags this year. Um, so several, several things have materialized over the last couple of years. Um, um, there was a recent calf mortality study, a three-year calf mortality study that was completed. Um, and then when, when the results were tallied and all the data was analyzed and collected and whatever, however they, what, however they do it, um, it was determined that there was a much higher calf uh, mortality rate than what was originally thought. Um, so there was, there's been two previous calf mortality uh, studies done in Pennsylvania, one back in the 90s and then one back in the early 2000s. And at that time, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the folks that performed the uh, surveys, they would utilize um, just the regular radio telemetry. I know if you, sometimes you see elk in the elk range that have collars on them. They're actually, it's actually radio telemetry, and it allows the game commission and the elk biologist folks to actually pinpoint exact locations, you know, and find and find cows. So those previous studies, um, they would go out on the, the, the biologists and the aides and the wardens and whoever else. That, they would go out on the landscape and locate cows that they thought should be giving birth at any time just by visually looking at them and saying all right well this cow this cow is obviously pregnant she should be giving birth and then you time that right about the normal time that calves start hitting the ground which is right around now uh early and mid-june and uh they they would actually just almost line up and perform like a little drive so to speak through tall grass and through woods until they would find it find a calf a calf that was already born curled up there, you know, just trying to, just trying to hide and do its calf thing. And, uh, they would then perform their, uh, they take their measurements, they weigh them. They would look at their umbilical cord and there was, I, I don't know. I know that's how they do it. I don't know exactly the, the ins and outs of it, but, um, they could look at the umbilical cord that was left on the calf and they could pretty much well gauge within a couple of days, how, how fresh that calf was, how, how long they had been out. So at that point, a lot of times they're dealing with calves that are already two, three, four, five, maybe even a week old. Um, uh, and those were a lot of the animals that they were handling and they would, they would put a collar on them. And, and then those were also three year surveys and those surveys were turning up survival rate of like in the mid and upper 80%, which is just, just phenomenal. I mean, it's unheard of, especially in Western populations. Um, uh, of course we don't, and that's partly because we don't have the predators here. I mean, yes, coyotes and bears do get some, um, but, but we don't have, you know, big cats, uh, we don't have grizzlies, you know, things like that. So, so our previous two studies showed, you know, significantly high mortality, or I'm sorry, significantly high, um, survival rates. And then, um, we just came off of this last, uh, um, 
fawn mortality of fawn calf mortality study and the pendulum actually swung the whole other direction um and at first um from what i'm told and from talking to the biologists and some of the aides it was very surprising at first like it was almost a step back like oh, wait a minute what's going on here how, how why is this like this how did we not know this and um that's partly related to the technology that's now used um to perform this study so so um it was just it was uh, the study was just performed by uh, Avery Corundi. Um, she is a former elk biologist aide. And then um, during this, she did this uh, survey as part of her master's program um, where she was actually darting cows in, in the wintertime um, with tranquilizer darts. She had a mobile ultrasound uh, unit. And so once the cow was down and immobilized, she could uh, ultrasound the cow, see if she was pregnant. If she was, the cow would get fitted with a collar and the cow would also receive what's called a VIT, V-I-T. Um, it's it's kind of rough, but it's a vaginal implant transmitter. So it's it's exactly what it sounds like. So when the cow's immobilized, she's pregnant, she gets her collar and then they they actually insert well, this VIT up in her vaginal cavity up against the cervix. And it doesn't affect her at all in her day to day life. But when she goes to calf, that gets pushed out with the calf. And that little sensor immediately sends an email and a text notification to whoever's on the predetermined list. So Avery had, would tell me that she would wait. When, and when they would pop, when she would get that email and that text, she would always wait at least four hours before she would ever try to go, at least minimum four hours before she would ever try to go and and um, catch the calf that gives mom that initial time to get the calf clean um, the calf would usually get its first suckling by then um, but it's still pretty weak and immobile and essentially it's a lot easier to handle so what what this new technology opened up was now where the previous two studies we were looking at animals that were already into five six a week six days a week of life and on where where their their um their chances go way up you know even if they make it to that point um this vit technology was allowing um avery and jeremy and the, and the other biologists and veterinarians that was giving them a look and insight into the very first moments and into the first few days of life for those calves and it, it sounds like what they were finding was a much higher mortality rate um, in those in those very early moments, hours, and days uh, of life, and that was never captured before because at that point those calves were already dead, and those previous two studies, um, the, the 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 biologists and the aides didn't even know it. You know, they they weren't there was no way for them to monitor or gauge that mortality previously. The technology just wasn't there. The, the thing, the um, those surveys weren't performed that way. So, so this new this new VIT um, survey has really shed light on on the overall calf mortality, and it's it's much lower. At least in this three year study, it was much lower than what was uh, um, originally thought based off of the two previous studies. And you know, fawn re or I keep saying fawn calf recruitment along with the air, the yearly aerial survey, you know, those are two major factors that play into Jeremy's um, overall license allocation. So the aerial survey was performed again this year, 
and uh, they actually counted fewer. They, they, they felt they had a higher accuracy rate, but they counted fewer animals. Mm. So, so they base, they base their accuracy rate. Um, I'm sorry. Did I glitch right there? No, I hope I good. didn't. Uh, um, the, uh, the accuracy rate is based off of the number of known collared elk that are actually captured in the aerial survey. So I believe, I, so th- there was a graph I had saw. Um, um, it was in one of Jeremy's presentations. Well, it was in his presentation uh, back in uh, January when he made the um, the initial, I'm sorry, or January or April, yeah, when he made the initial um, uh, season uh, proposals. And um, what they had found was they, they observed 99 of the 116 collars that are out there. Wow. On the landscape. So they figured out to be an 85% detection rate. Well, previously, they were only ever right around 60% detection rate based on collars seen with the aircraft compared to what they knew to be on the ground. So um, they, even though they, they feel, well, even though they counted fewer animals, they feel they're way more accurate in that count, you know, with the 85% um, uh, detection rate. So, so that, that, that combined with, um this the results of the the vit study um that caused jeremy to lower cow tag allocations significantly so um this year well, there's only 70 cow tags allocated between archery general and late season um whereas last year there was 118 cow tags so so it's lowered by 40 so they, they dropped 48 cow tags wow um, um, uh, you know, across all uh, of the 14 zones. And they actually, they actually bumped the bull tags up a little bit. Um, a couple of the zones see some, saw some additional, additional bull tags this year. Um, that's partly also because in that aerial survey, then they're also able to, um, identify the ratio of ant- branch antler bulls to cows. And I believe if I recall the information right, we're somewhere in the 70 bulls to 100 cows, 70 branch antler bulls um, to 100 cows, which is extremely, extremely high. Um, I believe the elk management plan calls for something more like in the 30 or 40 range. Not that it's bad to have more bulls, I guess, but um, um, we're definitely well within the management plan and the standard, you know, to to um, I guess to, to, to allocate some more bull tags. Me personally. I, I don't know. Of course, you know, I mean, everybody wants a big bull when they're out there hunting. So that's what you're targeting and hunting. And you're talking about taking five more potential big bulls out. Um, it might not seem like much, but, um, you know, every year there's a couple more, a couple more. I don't know if there'll be another increase in bull tags, um, this, this coming next year, but, um, you know, that it it definitely, I, I, I think in the long run, um, we could see, I don't know, it might be a bit of a bold statement to say it, but I, I could see, you know, uh, a, a big bull here. What we consider a big pool here might, might the standards might be lowered in a couple of years, you know. Okay. Um, and that's not, that's not a doom and gloom thing, and I'm probably going to catch some flack for that. Um, I, that's just my, that's my anecdotal personal opinion. I'll just put it that way. Well, well correct me um, if I'm wrong. Pen- Pennsylvania is kind of like put on a pedestal a little bit as far as the caliber of bulls that we bring out of the state. I mean, let's face it, they're getting to an insane age class where they can express yes. maximum genetic potential. Uh, 
Yeah. Relatively speaking, pressure is low for for mortality in these animals. I mean, we've got hunting out there, but it's not like at Western states. There's a lot of things in favor to produce those that maximum antler growth. So so the the fact that we produce 400 inch elk on an annual basis is not normal. Correct. Correct. And and I guess that that might be. I guess uh, I'll probably. This is probably what I'm going to hear from 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 some of the, the from the folks that would disagree um uh yeah it's 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 not normal um and you just can't have a 400 bull behind every tree um like when uh like they're used to like the good old days like you you know you hear that all the time the good old days well i know i remember a couple years 17 18 19 um even 20 just it seemed like everywhere we went and looked, there was just giant gobber bulls. Just, I mean, especially during the rut, when they're visible, when they're when they're vulnerable. Um, and now, and I know, I know some of them bulls. I they didn't show up. They've disappeared. They didn't show up in in hunting harvests. So I don't know if that means they died of old age. They died of combat battles from the rut um or they died by a spotlight and they're up in the roof rafters of somebody's garage uh, that i don't know but i know there's i can think of four or five big big 400 plus bulls right off the bat that have just went mia mm. um and i mean for like two years in a row now i i could i could justify or i could rationalize i should say in my mind not seeing a bull for one year wouldn't mean that he's dead but two years in a row, not seeing him where he had been previously two, three years in a row, um, you know, that makes you think, well, crap, something's something's up. This guy's the guy either died, you know, naturally. He didn't show up in Hunter's Harvest, like I said. Um, unfortunately, he might have met his doom with met his maker with uh, a poacher or just, you know, Mother Nature. Who knows? Um, but. It definitely does seem like there just isn't the quantity. The quality's still there. There's still plenty of big bulls. Don't, don't, uh, I would never deny that or say anything other than that. It's just, uh, there doesn't seem to be the quantity that there used to be. Now they're there. There's still some whopper bulls that are out there. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just like with everything. Um, you know, the more opportunity is given, uh, Everybody wants, like I said, everybody wants a big bull. The guys that get bull tags, of course, they want a big bull. There, most guys aren't just don't want to shoot a, a rag just because they got a tag. And like a lot of guys would go out, draw, um, get some western tags, a lot of over the counter stuff. They're happy with a three by three or spikes and spike only areas, you know, or whatever. Um, and, but that just isn't how it is here. So sometimes guys hold out, and then uh, you know you end up finding that bigger bull. Well, and you and, think about uh, the management. I think about management, Brian. Like you think about. Let's turn this back to whitetail. So, you know, 2000 or 2001 was when we had antler point restrictions come into place for whitetail deer in the state. And yep. we uh, we saw a change in the herd dynamic. We saw changes in the population. We saw deer uh, get to an older age class, more two-and-a-half-year-old deer. And, and, you know, I believe it was at one time, and it may still be, that the goal within the, the whitetail management plan was to see – deer get to that second birthday and change that yes, How, yep. however 
nowhere in the plan or, or nowhere talking from a biological standpoint have I heard somebody say that our goal in the state of Pennsylvania is to get all bucks to the age of four and a half years old or to, to yeah. have that that top end um, top end quality maybe flirting with that trophy management side of things. So, you know, think with that logic back into the elk management program. Sure, there's probably things that can be done to micromanage in order to allow that high trophy class level, which so many people get that, you know, just that ideology of a, a trophy, monster four-inch bull. But is, uh, yep. is the trophy management side of that, is that biologically sound and necessary? And that's probably an argument that could be made of a lot of people but my biggest thing and you know my logic if i'm ever fortunate enough to draw a pennsylvania elk tag and draw a bull tag i just want to have an experience where i see elk and see mature elk because to me the trophy yep. is going to be within the hunt and the hunting experience it's not going to be measured in, inch, in, in inches of antler because you, you know I, I was fortunate i killed a, a 300 and like a 315 or 320 inch bull in montana one time i was thrilled with that and you know yep. if if i killed mm-hmm. a bull of that caliber in pennsylvania <laughs> I would be ecstatic, and I think there's a lot of hunters out there. So it's it's flirting with that trophy management versus you know quality herd well, management. Yeah, and and it's it's funny. I I see this every year, year in year out. Um, you know, from the outfitter side of it, um, like everybody talks about, I want a 400 inch bull. I want a 400 inch bull. Most guys don't know what a 400 inch bull looks like. Right. And the first the first 320, 330 bull, they 40 bull or 50 bull, they see they're like goo goo gaga let's go i'm ready to shoot you know um and you gotta that's conversations you have to have with guys ahead of time you know i mean like look if if you're serious about this we're gonna you're gonna be passing up some stuff and uh some guys once the reality hits them or once they actually see not a a good bull you know 330s 40s 50s type bull they're like man that's oh man that's beautiful that's exactly what i was looking for it's not 400 inches but that's exactly okay and let's go, you know. Same thing happens um, with whitetails. I mean, how many people do you yeah, know that say, yeah. "Oh, I saw saw a hundred and forty inch buck the other night," and like, like I know there's there's people out there I've had those conversations with that said they saw a one forty, and I thought, "Well, it's probably a hundred fifteen inch buck." Yeah, yep, yeah. And I tell you, I'm guilty <laughs> to use the whitetail analogy. I'm guilty. I mean, I yeah, I'd love a one twenties, thirties, forties buck, but. Man, I'm gonna pound the first hundred inch eight point I see that comes by, especially with a rifle. I, yeah, nothing I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, and and uh, and be ecstatic about it, you know. Um, um, I'll pass up some of the smaller bucks, you know, even though they're legal. But uh, um, you know, I if if <laughs> and if I'm, I'm hunting public ground and I see a 14, 15, 16 inch wide eight point, you know, that hundred inch type buck, man, I I can't. <laughs> that's that's I I can't hold off of that. You yeah, know? nothing wrong with um, that. Yeah, yeah. But but I would have uh, but I, conversely you know if you would go find yourself hunting somewhere else where the standard could be set a little bit higher you know that's where you just have to control yourself control your impulses control your brain your mind and uh, um, you know have expectations and understanding and understanding set ahead of time so um, yeah a, a lot of guys say that 400 bull 400 bull then they end up shooting a 340, 350 bull, and they're just bawling their eyes out, crying. They're so happy, you know. Um, so it, it, that that happens regularly, you know. I see that see that all the time. Sure. Um, 
And uh, it, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, as long as I, I, as an outfitter and a guide, um, I'm never going to tell a client no. Now, uh, as far as like if they see an animal and they like it and they're happy and they understand what they're looking at, I'm surely never going to tell somebody no. But if somebody is in the scope on the shooting sticks and they look over and whisper, what do you think? And I was like, well, we probably could do better. We probably, you know, well, he's right here. I'm going to take him. Okay, that's fine. Go for it. You know, or, or you know what? I, you're right. I see what you're saying about let's go look for another one or look for the other one, you know. Um, so so really it's just having that conversation up front ahead of time with folks and being completely honest with them. Um, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of BS that goes on out there behind the scenes promises made for 400 inch bulls. And I guarantee this, I guarantee that. And I just, I shake my head when I hear those stories after the fact, cause I'm like, I just don't know how anybody does that in good conscience, how anybody can say that, you know? Um, but as long as guys are happy at the end of the day, as long as hunters are happy at the end of the day. That's that's all Absolutely. that matters. Like 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 you like you said, you know, it's about the experience, it's about the hunt, the camaraderie, new friends, doing something totally different, um, in a totally different area. A lot of folks that draw are from Pennsylvania that draw, they're they're within four or five hours of the elk range, but they've never been here. So the woods looks totally different from where they're used to hunting at home. They've never been up. So it's all even though it's they're not leaving the state, it's still an adventure to some extent for a lot of folks. And uh you know, a lot of folks will would never find themselves on a guided or outfitted hunt out of state. So this is a way for them to, you know, try to scratch that itch, so to speak, by staying at home. Right. And the, and the experience is, uh, it, it, we we work on that just as much too. You know, the camaraderie aspect of it, and hanging out at camp, and good food, and all that kind of stuff. It's all it's all just as important as you know when that animal hits the ground. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very important aspect of everything. So man, from a 2023, 2024 elk hunting season perspective, is there anything else going into this season, whether it's from the state's perspective that maybe we didn't brush over or from, um, an ECO standpoint that, that you'd like to, to brush up on? Like, what are some things you're looking forward to, or maybe some updates or changes? Um, well, geez, hmm, let me think about that for a second. Uh, so as far as ECO goes, um, we're kind of, we're still trucking along. Um, we've added a couple new guides, um, a couple fellas, um, that were already, um, established elk guides that they've come on board with us. A couple of the guys, uh, over the years have kind of just faded. A couple of our longtime guys have just kind of faded out just due to life changes, you know, kids, work responsibilities, um, that sort of thing. So we're still right around that um, 35 to 40 licensed guide um, um, guides for ECO. Now, obviously, not everybody's there all at once. Some, you know, work. I've said this before in the past, you know, nobody makes a full time living as an elk guide in Pennsylvania or as an outfitter. So we all have regular 40 hour week jobs or whatever. So some of our guys can only guide during archery season or some of our guys can only guide during the general season so we have that number of guides but but um not everybody's always here at the same time and every one of the guys have their own little niche or their own little plate you know their own little area of expertise whether it be zone wise 
or whatever. You know, certain guys want to stay and guide in certain zones. Some guys are just killers and they'll go anywhere and, and put tags on elk. Um, and some guys are, are newbies and I, I'll, I'll always team those guys up with some experienced guys first for a season or two, um, before I would turn them loose, you know, as, as a standalone guide. Um, so, so, you know, we, we still have all our guides. Um, um, we're, 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 I'm trying to get, get us more into a position, um, where, where we, I, I want to be more active in our community as Elk County Outfitters. And, and I say that by, by meaning like I, I want to do more things, um, to benefit local EMS services local youth sports. Um, but I, I, again, I go back to saying, you know, um, nobody makes a living at this. There's not a whole lot of meat left on the bone at the end of elk season till everything is paid off. Um, and, but, but I want I'm getting myself slowly chipping away to get us more in a position to be, to be more of a, you know, a, I don't know if I say pillar of the community. That's a little bit, that's a little bit of a long reach there, but, uh, I definitely want to become, you know, a, a lot more socially active in, in the, at the community level. Um, you know, uh, just being grateful for all the stuff that the EMS services provide across the elk range. There's multiple fire departments and EMS services, um, and search and rescue teams. Um, they just do phenomenal work for a volunteer base. Um, uh, for having a volunteer base, you know, they're, they have really good response times. Um, and man, when shit hits the fan, those are the people that you need to be ready, you know, and need to be on your side and, and they're there and I want to do what I can to support them, you know, um, as ECO and as a group, um, we're getting more into, um, I don't know. So right now we're right here in early June. I'm not sure when you're going to be able to hit this on, uh, or have this on the, on the, uh, podcast. But um, we're, we're getting a little more active. Um, um, we're sponsoring uh, some tar- archery targets at the Montage Mountain Archery Fest, which is coming up this weekend. Um, it's a brand new inaugural event. This is the first time. Um, it's, uh, it's held at Montage Mountain, which is up northeast Pennsylvania, up near Scranton. Um, it's, it's similar to a lot of the other big archery shoots that are around where it's on a ski slope. So you ride, you know, there's a vendor village at the bottom, all kinds of vendors and, and, uh, and whatnot. And then there's art, there's various archery courses that are scattered throughout the ski slopes and the woods. And you ride the, um, uh, chairlift up the top of the mountain and shoot your way down. Kind of the same format as total archery challenge and a lot of those other, other ones. Um, so we're getting involved with that event as Elk County Outfitters and helping sponsor there. Um, I think we're going to also get involved. Um, there is a, uh, an archery shoot that's uh, hosted up at the grounds of the Elk Country Visitor Center um, this summer. Uh, last year was their first shoot. We, we didn't really do anything there, but but we reached out to them and they reached out to us, um, the, the, you know, the folks that are putting that on. So looking to get involved more in that, just kind of have more of a presence um, outside of just elk season. You know, I feel like um, um, being socially or being socially and locally involved, you know, with, with, with different things, um, just benefits, benefits the group in the long term. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and just, just, just do, just do, doing whatever we can, you know, um, 
being there and trying to help out any way we can, you know, outside of just our, the regular elk hunting seasons. Um, there's, uh, um, as far as game commission stuff goes, boy, I hope we get some rain because they're going to be getting into their summertime planning, uh, um, cycles here soon. And, uh, boy, if we don't get some rain, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, as they're doing their planning rotations for like clovers and turnips and, you know, their, their annual, some of their annual plantings. Absolutely. Um, I hope, hope it all goes well for them there, but that's all up to mother nature. I mean, there's nothing much that we can do about that. Um, um, you know, there's, uh, there, there's some, there's some interest within the game commission. They've been reaching out and talking to, talking to some of the outfitters, um, just kind of, uh, it seems like there might be a little bit of a, uh, internal push with them to try to foster, um, or bolster, you know, um, outfitter, elk, elk outfitter, elk hunter, game commission relations. Um, so there, there's some neat stuff happening there. Hopefully we'll see what actually materializes from that. If it's not just all lip service. Um, but uh, without getting too much down of a rabbit hole there, but that, that's, that is an interesting thing that, uh, that that's happening there. Um, and then, uh, I, well, we, we didn't touch on this. So we, I mentioned earlier at the beginning about the, the non or the, the giant typical bull we killed, um, with the governor's tag last year. Um, just this past April, this season's the 2023 elk governor tag went up for auction. Um, and we smashed a, we, a, a new record, um, a new, a new record. The auction was, um, done online, which is different. In the past, they've always been live auction items at, um, like elk banquets, fundraising events. And, um, you know, folks interested would call, they could, they could attend or they could just call in as a phone bidder. Um, this year, the, the Pennsylvania tag, along with a whole bunch of the other states, um, they pulled their tags out of um, local banquets and live auctions and put them onto this online auction where essentially you're looking at a computer screen and you're just watching and refreshing and, and um, you're seeing the bids go up. Now, you can't see who bids, but you can see the dollar amount change. So this past season, Pennsylvania elk auction tag went for $325,000. My goodness. Um, just, and so, and last year it was 275,000. So a $50,000 jump. Um, and the crazy thing is Mitchell, that would have went higher, but the number two guy, his Wi-Fi glitched in the last seconds and he couldn't get his next bid in. And so I can't imagine what it went to. There was two guys that were hot and heavy and, um, um, the number one and number two guy there. The number two guy's Wi-Fi glitched, and he couldn't get his next bid in. And I remember, I never forget that phone call. Uh, he was just livid. He was just, he couldn't believe, of all times for technology, to take a crap on him. Well, to you me, know, that it, sounds it like bad. that sounds like it was meant to be Wi-Fi glitching because I have a sneaking suspicion that that one more bid could have maybe landed him a divorce or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, that that I don't know. I don't. He he did tell me that he was prepared to go to continue going uh, a, a significant amount more. I don't know what the number one guy what he would have went to, but um. Um, you know, this fella, the, the, the winner, the lucky winner, um, uh, he is, he is with us with Elk County Outfitters. We, we had been in contact with him, uh, be, well before the auction. Um, he had done some research and he reached out to us and let us know that, you know, he would be bidding on it. 
and we would be in touch. So we had a couple fellas, uh, a couple hunters that were interested in it, and we knew that they were actively bidding. But when it, it came down to that last uh, that, that last bid, he said his Wi-Fi glitched, and he was trying to hit refresh and refresh and refresh, and it wouldn't go. And he even told me he threw his laptop out the front door. He oh, was so my, mad. my. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that, so that is a huge chunk of money that's now going into the game commission elk coffers. Um, you know, um, by, by law, I believe Rocky Mountain Elk Federation, they, 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 uh, put on the auction or host the auction. I believe by law, they are allowed to maintain or to retain, I should say, 20% of those funds to cover, um, their, um, uh, advertising costs to cover any administrative costs or anything. And then the rest of that money by law is required to go back to the game commission to be used for elk specific projects. And from what I hear, a little birdie tells me that there is a massive, massive habitat project that's in the works um, for the game commission. And this, this tag is going to, I don't want to say it's going to fully fund it, but it's going to definitely fund like the first phase of this. It's apparently it's, it's, it's hundreds of acres um, and it's multi phases and it's public ground improvement. So, um, you know, I, a lot of people, when they hear governor's tag stuff and they, they hear about the dollar amounts, everybody wants to roll their eyes and say, Oh my God, rich man, you know, rich man sport. Well, if you hunt, anywhere in the elk range for deer, bear, turkey, small game, anything, you have one way or another and inadvertently benefited from governor's tag monies. That money is used to buy uh, and maintain farm equipment for the game commission food and cover cores or, um, you know, to food and cover crews um, to buy newer equipment, to be more efficient and more productive. Um, you know, better usage of the time. It buys seed, it buys lime, it buys fertilizer, it buys um, radio telemetry and vit telemetry for the um, biologists, you know, to do all the different research programs. Um, they're, they're, we, we all benefit for it one way or the other. You know, a lot of folks, um, like I said, they, they get that hairy eyeball when they hear about governor's sure. tag stuff and, and how much money is spent. Well, the, the beauty of it is the way that that law is written, that money has to go on the ground for elk. Um, so that it's, it's a huge win, um, for, for Pennsylvania elk and Pennsylvania sportsmen, you know, Good deal. specifically Good anybody, deal. anybody that recreates here, you know, in the elk range, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a big thing. So yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be a huge shot. It's, uh, I don't think it's really necessarily all that much known or air quotes public yet, but I know, I know I've heard some talks and rumors and rumbling about this huge habitat project that's going to be getting kicked off with with a bunch of these funds. Positive so things happening that's, that's from that. Thing. Po- positive things yes. happening from that side. So you know, you know, summarizing too, we've got till I think July 16th until you can get your your elk points and your zone allocations and all that stuff taken care of. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Let's touch on that real quick. Yes. Yeah, so July 16th is the cutoff date. That's that's the ending. Um, you can apply at any point of sale. So anywhere you would buy a hunting license over the counter, whether it's Walmart or Bass Pro or Cabela's or any mom and pop sporting goods store, you can apply for your elk application right then. Um, you can also apply for it online at huntfish.pa.gov. 
Um, you just sign in. You have to create an account if you don't already have one. Um, you sign in, and then you can actually uh, do your elk application right there online. Also, you just follow the prompts and click the buttons. Um, you can you so it, it was a change a couple of years ago, and some folks still kind of struggle or don't quite understand. Used to be you could pick one zone. Um, and then if that zone was full and you get drawn, they would just give you the next tag if you were drawn. Now things have changed a little bit. I know we went over this once last year. So you have to pick at least one zone for a preference and you can pick up to five zones for a preference. Um, you know, elk zones one through 14 with seven being a closed zone with no tags allocated. So really there's 13 different zones that oh, I'm sorry, one doesn't count either. One is an open zone. So, so really, there is 12 different zones that you can choose from. You can choose one or up to five. And then as you go along, at the end, you're going to have an option. Something's going to pop up called um, fallback, the fallback option. So essentially, fallback means no preference. So let's just say hypothetical, Mitchell, you apply for elk zones two, three, four, and five. All right? We're just going to use them because that's an easy number. And you do not click fallback. So you have now applied for elk zones two, three, four, and five only. So if you would be, if you would get drawn, say you would be the very last bull hunter drawn and zones two, three, four, and five are already filled, the tags are already allocated, you do not get a tag. Now you, you do not burn your points up. You wouldn't even see that. The computer would automatically um, internally, you know, adjust for that and and you wouldn't be awarded a tag now if you would apply for zones two three four and five and click fallback fallback essentially means no preference so now you're drawn last two three four and five are already are already filled and just say hypothetically the very last bull tag that's unawarded is for elk zone 14 boom you get elk zone 14 because you clicked fallback so so what that's done is that has allowed folks, um, so this year, um, 20, this year, maximum bonus points would be 20. So folks could be carrying 20 bonus points over plus this year's application. So there's a, there's folks that have a lot of time invested, not a lot, but they have, they have a lot of points invested and they, they want to draw a tag that they want. Now, even if, and even at the cost of not drawing a tag. So let's just say, you apply for two, three, four, and five, and that's all you want. You don't want a zone 14 tag. That's where you leave fallback empty or leave it blank. Um, guys don't, some guys don't want to burn up their 20 points for a tag that they don't, in a zone that they don't know about. So, so, so there's get, so there's a little bit more customization there now with, with the way the zones, um, the way you can pick zones at times of application. Yeah. And I, I really like that too, because like for me personally, you know, we've got three seasons, right? We've got the archery, the general and the late. And, and yep. my thought process is like my favorite thing in the world is archery hunting. And if yep. I am ever given the opportunity to archery hunt elk in Pennsylvania, I want to do it in, in a preferred zone and I want it to be yep. a bull only. And I don't want to lose those points for that, that archery hunt for that specific experience. However, yep. for, you know, I also apply for the general and the late season. 
and I've made the decision that it would be an honor to hunt elk in Pennsylvania at that time of the year, regardless of the zone, regardless of the, the, the sex of the animal. The so yep. you, you can specifically pick it via season too. So like for me, when I put my, I put my application in, I have my four or five zones that I pick for archery hunting and I, I have no fallback on that and it's a bull only, but then my general and my late season, I pick my zones, but I also put a fallback and I'm an either or in, in sex. Tank. That's, either sex. My, that's my preference. Yep. Yep. There's, there's so much customization that's available there now with this, um, with this, with this fallback and the, and the five zone choices. And well, one of the things though, that has, that has, that has adversely affected, and I guess I don't know if adversely is the right word, but now there is no way to calculate odds of drawing at all because there's too many variables in there now with folks uh, only applying for one zone and not choosing fallback and, and either sex for one season and bull only for another and cow only for another. Um, they the, they used to be able to analytically get a pretty good estimate of um, the percentage of draws, chances of drawing. But now with all these new with all these new options and ways to customize your application, there's just there's no way to calculate odds at all. So, um, but I I, th- I think it's a plus. I think it's a good thing, and especially like you just said, you know, I I really want a bull for archery, but the other the general and the late i'd be happy with any tag so you can apply exactly like you know exactly in that method um you know to 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 meet your goals or what's your ultimately what you hope your goals are um so so yeah july 16th is the last day to apply um you can apply like i said any point of sale um and through huntfish.pa.gov and this is another big one um on huntfish.pa.gov at any time leading up to July 16th, you can edit your elk application. So let's just say uh, you put in, again, we'll just use two, three, four, five back in February. And now since then, you've learned something, knew something, met somebody, did something, or, well, crap, I don't want those elk zones now. I want this elk zone. You can log back into your huntfish.pa.gov account. And you can go in and change and adjust your application uh, choices, your zone choices, right up until um, um, July 16th, the last day of the cutoff. So the other thing I recommend to folks, too, especially folks that buy, that go and buy at point of sales, go into stores and buy theirs. I hear I see this again all the time, almost every year. I didn't put in for that zone. How did I draw that tag? How did I draw that zone? Well, here, unbeknownst, uh, little Timmy at the Walmart sporting goods calendar put his application in wrong and the, and he never thought to double check it. Well, you can go in again to huntfish.pa.gov and you can go in and you can see your choices and you can verify and make sure. Um, I, one instance a couple years ago, I know a fellow drew a cow tag. He was scratching his head. He says, I know I apply bull only. I don't know what in the world happened. And this was before huntfish.pa.gov. And the only thing he could think of was the person that I think he bought his at Walmart or something like that. And the only thing he could think of was whoever was on the computer that day put his application in wrong. So and now he burned up points. Um, I mean, he was still happy. He had a great hunt. He, he got a cow. It just he was like, man, I, I really wanted the bull tag. I, I, I would have applied or I had a, a historically applied bull only, you know. Right. So so you 
don't be just so naive and uh, and forgetful about it. You know, go on and check and double check it and make sure that if you go somewhere else and somebody else enters your information, make good double check and make sure that's correct. And you can do that through huntfish.pa.gov. Yeah, that's great so, information. Yep. Well, yep. hey, Wayne, you've um, been rolling for a while, man. Um, one, yes, one question I had, this is a completely yep. random uh, off question, Elk, but I'm curious. Have you ever guided a client that used a flintlock muzzleloader to harvest an elk? No, but I know a guy who hunted DIY and used a flintlock. Yep. So, and um, there's been folks that have used, uh, we've had folks that have used inline muzzleloaders, um, percussion muzzleloaders um, that hunted with us, but we've never had a flintlock hunter. But I do know, I do know personally know a fellow that hunted DIY and used a flintlock. And I believe there's been several other guys. They may have even hunted with other outfits or even on their own. But um, I, it's not, it's it's not totally rare. I would say maybe one a year you hear about it. I I know I hear multiple guys always pitch it. You know, oh, I'm gonna bring my flintlock. Well, then kind of reality sets in and like, man, do you really wanna? Are you really limiting yourself to that? to the to the you know to the capabilities of that weapon for this once in a lifetime hunt some guys hell yeah they don't care that's what they want to do it with it means more to do it with that than than you know a high-powered rifle but um it, it does happen it is out there and is that what Mitchell's going to bring if he ever draws a tag? Well, we'll see. You know, that's one of the things. So <laughs> uh, my goal with, with hunting is I want to be as proficient with all the weapons that I use. And I hunt deer from the start of the season to the end of the season. And I yep. would consider myself like, you know, I'm not the guy when you go with a group of flintlock hunters that um, – you know, doesn't have a clue what they're doing with their gun. I mean, I understand the. Uh, I understand yeah. how to keep my gun dry. I understand how to maintain my guy, my gun. Have yep. uh, have quick ignitions on average. How you know how to have? I have all the tools, and I feel very confident in that. But one of my biggest goals, and one of the things I'm I'm hoping to do uh, this off season is practice more and be more proficient because I feel confident at a certain distance. But I want to make it that that's a weapon that I'm really proficient with. That when I hunt from december 26th to the end of the season that my confidence is just way high just because i know you know i, I almost treat a flintlock muzzleloader as uh really similar to archery as far as your proficiency and your fine-tuned ability to shoot that weapon and consistently shoot that weapon and consistently be able to load it because you're hand loading at the end of the barrel so you yeah know, I, it's one of those things that you know, if I drew a tag in 2023 for a general firearms or a late season, I don't know that I would have the confidence to do that. But you know what? Uh, it's always in my mind that that would be so cool to be proficient mm -hmm. and, and excel and do that. So, uh, you know, in all reality, my goal is uh, to harvest one with a bow. But um, I, I'm starting to, to really branch out on a leap of faith here. And at the end of the day, it would just be cool to be able to experience it with it regardless of the weapon. Yeah, man, practice, 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 right? I mean, with the bow, with the rifle, especially with the flintlock. I mean, I, I know some guys that are pretty hardcore flintlock hunters, and and they they are proficient at 100 yards offhand, you know. Um, but these guys shoot almost year-round, um, you know. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty serious about it. Um, but – yeah, there's just like we said, practice, practice, practice. If if that's if that's a weapon that you want to use and take on a bunch of different hunts, then 
like you said, you just got to be proficient with it. You got to know the unknown and understand its limitations and your limitations also, because there's, there's a whole nother set of what can go wrong, you know, with, with, when, with those things. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's a challenge. For sure. It, it is. But Brian, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show, um, sharing off some great information. There was, there was a lot of information from, you know, what you've learned from the mm-hmm. biologists to just some general experiences, the updates within that. And I really appreciate you, um, dissecting no that and breaking that down for all of our listeners so you know before we let you go any anything you want to close with and, and also make sure that you uh you let people know where they can follow along with uh eco oh yes yeah so of course um well we have fa- facebook elk county outfitters instagram elk county outfitters um we, our website elkcountyoutfitters.com um and our email elkcountyoutfitters at gmail.com i mean pretty much just all Elk County Outfitter stuff. Um, um, you know, you can follow us on social media. I try to keep our social media pretty active. I try to do a couple, at least one post a week, if not multiples. Um, whether it's um, you know just elk stuff or deer stuff or turkey stuff or just goings on, you know, in the elk range, anything like that. Um, just to try to keep people interested and keep active. Um, you know, show that we're just we just don't auto- automatically pop up around elk season and. And here we are, you know, I mean, we, um, I, I live here, uh, and, um, you know, constantly it's, it's 24, seven, 365 pretty much with me. Um, I'm always kind of looking for elk anywhere, run down the store, down to the grocery store. I'm always kind of got my eyes open looking for elk or anything. Um, going to work every day. Of course, I'm always kind of looking for elk. So it's, uh, it's pretty much 24, seven, 365, like I said, and I try to, you know, keep our socials active and, um, you know, put interesting content on there and, uh, funny content, you know, any, uh, informational stuff, especially. Um, so yeah, give us a, give us a click on any of that stuff and check us out. Good deal. Hey, Brian, thanks again. All right, man. No problem, Mitchell. Thanks so much for having me. Good luck.